coming up on Art Palace. I went to art school, but I left there because I didn't think it was doing me any good. And I would get into trouble, terrible trouble, with teachers that for some reason seem all to have been from Yale and places like that. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is artist Jay Bulletin, whose exhibition, The Book of Only Enoch and the Jackleg Testament, Part 1, Jack and Eve, is on view at the Cincinnati Art Museum from September 24th, 2016 through March 12th, 2017. This episode is a little different because it was a part of our In Conversation series and was recorded live on September 22nd, 2016. I hope you'll join us in person on Thursday, November 17th for the next In Conversation, Environmental Activism with Guy Mendez and Daniel Martin Moore, moderated by Emily Bauman. Our curator of prints, Kristen Spangenberg, moderated the conversation, and I want to apologize because we did have some mic problems this evening, so Kristen's mic can be occasionally crackly, but I think you will still be able to hear all of her questions. We now join Jay Bulletin and Kristen Spangenberg in conversation. So Jay, I'd like to start uh, with a question. What drives you to tell and retell stories? Um, well, uh, there, there were some people in my, where I grew up that seemed to entertain themselves by doing so. And I was, uh, I didn't talk much when I was a boy, but I, I liked to listen to them, you know, uh, mostly black people and Appalachian people and, uh, and curiously enough, uh, a lot of Eastern European Jews. Uh, it's a little hard to explain. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I was somewhat surrounded by that and, and recall it fondly. Yeah. And where, did, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born near Lexington, in Lexington, Kentucky. Grew up on a farm uh, outside of Lexington. And uh, yeah. Um, so, how did your upbringing influence your work? Uh, that's always a, a bit of a loaded question. I mean, uh, you know, do we have four or five hours and a bottle of bourbon? We could. Uh, maybe, maybe we could give a little summary. Oh, let's see. Uh, well. I'm working on a, a short movie with a lovely gentleman named Elan Stavins, uh who uh, I've come to admire. He's, he's a great writer, editor of, of the Oxford Book of Jewish Stories and the Norton Anthology of Latino Literature, a lovely man. And he has written extensive uh, autobiographically about his he, himself and his family in Mexico, grew up in Mexico City. And uh, I was asking Elon, why do they always ask you, you know, about your childhood and what it has to do with your work? And he said, well, Jay, 
get used to it. And, uh, and he said, and he looked at me seriously and he said, all autobiography is fiction. And all fiction is autobiography. And that's, and I, I sort of understood what, what he was saying. So it's, it's a, other than that, we would need several more hours. Yeah. Okay, well then maybe this is an easier question. Okay. <laughs> um, when did you do your first woodcut? I did my first woodcut uh, because of Carl Solway, who's sitting here. Uh, and he said... Jay, uh, it was taking me half a year to do one drawing at the time. I would draw quite a bit, but they were very built-up drawings, and Carl would come by the studio and say, Jay, why don't you think about making a print? And I said, why would I do that? And he said, because that way you'd have more than one. And I said, oh. Uh, so uh, I did, the first print I made was, uh, it was called The Mortal Pilgrimage. And I, I don't want to say I was unconscious of how big it was, but it was, uh, uh, I, I, I was coming at it as a sculptor. Uh, and I thought, well, the best way for a sculptor to make a print would be to to carve it in wood. And uh, it was uh, 16 feet long and 4 feet high. And uh, and Carl showed it up in Chicago, right? At the Chicago Art Fair. And uh, and it, it got some attention, if for no other reason, because it was so big, you know? And, uh, and a print council, I think, I, I don't know if they're still around, the World Print Council or something? World Print Competition. I don't know. It was in a show with. Uh, uh, I was the only person that nobody had ever heard of. It it was uh, Liechtenstein, and it was called uh, American Woodcut uh, Renaissance and Revival, something like that. I don't know. Uh, and it went all over Europe, and uh, and there there became some interest in in. Uh, and and I thought, oh well, this is you know it's the first time I had ever been paid attention to, and and uh, I found that I liked printmaking and uh, fell into the habit of thinking out stories through making series of prints, and uh, uh, so it's been a way for me to think. It's been a way for me to make a living, uh, and uh, that's probably more than you ever wanted to know. Yeah. Well, what I would like to know is how did you meet Carl? Well, let's see. I was living way out in the country in Kentucky uh, and in a place that didn't have electricity or anything and I was making sculptures and I had heard about a place called the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire and I went to the library in Cynthiana, Kentucky, and I looked that up, and, and uh, I didn't know how to apply, so I wrote a letter. This was in the 1974 or 5, and 
I wrote a letter to them and uh, said I'd like to come there for the worst part of winter and, uh, and sent them some Polaroid pictures of some sculptures out in a tobacco field. I didn't even know how to apply. And uh, I don't think this would happen today, but they wrote me back and said, you are accepted for the worst part of winter. <laughs> and, uh, and I met some lovely people there, kind of changed my life, some, some uh, rather well-known, mostly writers. Uh, and one was a woman named Hannah Green, uh, who taught at uh, graduate school at Columbia and wrote these very dense novels. Uh, she's no longer with us, but uh, she was originally from Glendale. And uh, after I was there, she invited me with her husband, a wonderful painter named Jack Wesley, who some of you all might know his work. Uh, and I'd stay with them in, in New York, and, uh, and they said, oh, there's this man from kind of near where you are. It was a, uh, and, and he has a gallery in Soho and one in Cincinnati, Ohio. And they introduced me to Carl uh, in Soho in New York, and it must have been 1975 or six. And, uh, and over the next few years, Carl would sometimes come down to Cynthiana out in the forest and camp out in front of the house, and we'd talk about art and, and making things, and, and eventually uh, I had a show here. Uh, so that's essentially how, how Carl and I got together, and he's, uh, he's been... I've never known another dealer. He's almost more like my father than he is, than he is an art dealer. So, yeah, I really feel part of his family. Um, <clears throat> do you intentionally make your images like caricatures or exaggerated? Uh, did you ever study life drawing? I, was, uh, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design briefly, and of course, there was life drawing and so forth, and uh, I was a terrible student. Uh, and uh, it was mostly full of really talented kids, from mostly from New York. And uh, I remember one of my favorite drawing teachers, uh, a woman named Myrna Lamb. I would sit there in life drawing class and just have this empty piece of paper, and I'd sit there staring at it. And they'd have models, you know, and I'd, and she'd come up behind me and, and look at my empty piece of paper and say, it's a perfect composition. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, thank you. And uh, she said, Jay, you're going to have to mess it up with some marks. So I, I did start to draw from life, but it just never looked right to me. Uh, and until I felt as though I were making things up, that looked right. And it was not it was not as though I were trying to distort things because I would draw from models, but they never looked right <laughs> somehow. And it looked it looked more correct if I just made it up. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. I don't think of it as being distorted. I think of it as being correct, actually. Um, so when do you think that you actually developed your mature style? Is there any particular project, any particular moment of realization, oh, this is really what I'm going to do? That was yesterday. Yeah. 
I would, I didn't work today. I took the day off, you know. Uh, it's still working on it. Uh, but, uh, you know, these projects do tend to take sometimes a decade or so. And uh, I feel like time is a kind of tool, like a pencil is. And uh, I do contemplate things and recontemplate things and redo them and redo them again often until they seem to have some hopefully sense of of uh, I suppose you would say truth to me you know so the answer is I'm still working on it yeah mm-hmm. well, now you have completed um, the Jack Leg testimony part one Jack and Eve which we are showing for the first time in the museum um, what was the source for the woodcut images of the movie? Um, let's see. That that would have been uh, in the mid nineties. I had uh, I had spent a decade of making uh, first a portfolio of prints about a story that I had heard in Kentucky. Boy, you know, if I go down any of these roads, it's going to take another four hours and another That's all right. We've had, we've yeah. uh, that, that at a certain point in time, security yeah, yeah. will well, <laughs> tell us we have to leave. I mean, it's all connected, but, but let's see. Uh, uh, I, I had spent a decade working on one piece, and it involved, uh, it ended up being a, an, uh, an opera with uh, big mechanical pieces on the stage and... Uh, singers from Germany and musicians, one nastier than the next, you know, and uh, uh, and the Pittsburgh Opera did it eventually, and it it was very stressful uh, for about a decade. That was Limbus. That was Limbus. The the source of a mechanical opera. Oh, here it is. Yeah, and there there are several people sitting here who suffered through that with me. Somebody said I solved the artist unemployment problem in Cincinnati for about a decade, you know. Uh, But uh, so I was tired after that, and I just wanted to do something that was right here, right in front of me, you know, not not involving gobs of people and and all of this uh, folderol. And so I just made a story. I tried to think of a story. I didn't want to think much, so I started to think about a story that we all know, like the the story of Adam and Eve. And I thought, well, you know, what would my version be of that, you know? And I, and I made a, again, with somebody lovely here who's a Michelle Red Elk as a printer, helped me make a series of 12 color prints called, uh, I forget what it's called, but, but uh, it's a, it, 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 well, it's called a, a, a prehistory to that which is by mistake called the fall of man, uh, Jack and Eve. And, uh, and I tried to make this, it took two years, and I drove her crazy too, and, uh, as a printer, and tried to make a story that replaced Adam with a jack-in-the-box, the person inside of a jack-in-the-box. And uh, so... What was the question? (laughs) 
Well, I was hoping that you'd start to talk about the Jack League test. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> we made that uh, that series of prints, and uh, and I liked it. I liked the story, and uh, and again, after all of this decade of making mechanical pieces that were 14 feet high and, and did things, I loved doing that, but I didn't want to do that anymore. I decided, well... I wonder if I could make a movie, you know, and write the score like I did with the opera, except have a little bit more control over it. And I started to look in some, with some advice from Mark Patsfall, the, the lovely printer who's here, uh, of how to get beyond the picture plane, how to, and I had always dreamed of this even when I was a little boy, like when you're sitting on the floor in the living room looking at a, frame picture and you kind of wonder what's what's behind the tree you know and you would kind of want to crawl in there and look behind there and see if there's something there and I I kind of figured out a way to do that you know uh, but but then I got into uh, again with a new printer Krista Gregory who's here who suffered through this with me for another six or seven years and I and I had to deconstruct the picture plane uh, and, uh, and I made another portfolio of prints that were just the parts, all of the flora, all of the fauna, all of the body parts, all of the uh, architectural details uh, in separate little elements and uh, stitched those back together in the process of making a movie and that became what, what, what we know of as the Jack Leg Testament Part 1. Yeah. Well, just just so that everybody knows, how do you actually sort of define the term of Jack Leg? Where, where did that come from? Jack Leg is a term that I thought everybody in the world knew what that meant. Uh, growing up in Kentucky, it, one would refer to, and then and then and to, to, I'll finish that sentence. But I found out later that no people north of the Ohio River don't seem to know what that means. <laughs> Or in Russia, go figure, whatever. But uh, uh, in Kentucky, it meant, and it was not a term of derision. It would refer to somebody who knew how to fix a car, but was not, didn't work at the auto shop as a jackleg mechanic, or somebody that could fix a house as a jackleg carpenter. It wasn't like a schooled carpenter or a schooled mechanic. It was one a person who had somehow figured it out, you know? And uh, since I was working from, in the case of the story of Jack and Eve, I was working from the Hebrew Testament or the Old Testament, and and I almost sort of set about to redo that, you know? So I figured, well, that might be called the Jack Leg Testament because I'm making it up basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, and then I, I found out later that, that I mean, you, you learn the etymology of certain phrases and so forth, and people would tell me things. And I've, I've come across knowledge this way quite in a lovely way, just by a, a kind of achieved sort of education. But, uh, and there are lovely people in the world who will share their knowledge with you. Jack Leg sometimes could refer to, uh, I bet some of you all know what are called the jack tails, which are 
the most famous of which is Jack and the Beanstalk. But there are endless amounts of what are called jack tales. They're mostly Appalachian, uh, Appalachian oral tradition. But but uh, that does have something to do with with the phrase jack leg. And uh, I found all kinds of interesting. And and before the Appalachian tradition, it it had to do with mostly uh, Scots-Irish uh, people and English people. And uh, they have their own jack tales over there. And it's fascinating to me. I mean, most of the, most of the British jack tales involve magic in some way. Jack wins through magic. The American ones have no magic. Uh, jack wins through cunning in America. And I find that fascinating. And uh, so it, uh, that, again, another four or five hours, we could cover that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, one aspect of, your, of, of the Jack Lake testimony is that you wrote the script. It's, it's, it's actually the Jack Lake Testament. Testament, yeah. yes. Yeah. And um, the, um, also you wrote the music as I well. Did. Now, what in your background gave you the skills or the, the knowledge to do that? I had a career, and in a sense still do, as a songwriter. There, there actually is a series of releases uh, coming out next year that uh, cover some of that from a label in Chicago. But, uh, boy, uh, I, I, I was a, I, I, I played songs in clubs and I wrote songs. Eventually, I, I spent some time in Nashville, uh, lived there, and uh, you know uh, there are many stories. And, and I could, uh, I'm a little reluctant to. I mean, I could drop some names that people would know, but uh, I, I don't like to do that. Uh, it, it's, uh, I was respected by uh, some very famous people. Uh, and derided by the music industry. So there's always been this dichotomy. Uh, uh, and that's, that's always been, to this day, it's, it sort of applies. I mean, lovely actor, wonderful songwriter, Chris Christopherson, do you all still know who that is? Uh, would say wonderful things about my songs and... Uh, and when in, in, in the business part of Nashville, it's called Music Row. And there was an article in the paper, this is for example, where Chris was saying uh, some wonderful things about my songs. And he was saying, those fools on Music Row won't deal with him. And uh, yeah, I'm just kind of proud of that. But then ever since then, or back then, when I would meet somebody from Music Row, they would shake my hand and say, I'm one of those fools on Music Row, you know, that don't want to deal with your music. And I said, oh, nice to meet you. <laughs> uh, so there's always been that dichotomy. But, but, but I, I st I, I've always written music since I was 13 or 14 and uh, still do. So I write the scores to these things. And, so so yeah. how does the, the music impact your visual art? Is it just all sort of come together or I don't think of it as 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 that different than visual art it's it's a tool mm -hmm. it, it feels quite the same to me where one 
one seeks an image and tries and and uh, it's the same with music it's it's a process that almost feels like a physical physical process it all feels like a physical process to me uh, that 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 one struggles with and wrestles with and sometimes you come out with something that seems viable and seems to want to have the right to exist in the world. And uh, that's always been a... You don't often get there, but when you do, there's there's no other feeling quite like that. I, I And it's one that one wants to get that feeling again. So you keep going. Yeah. Um, now, the Jack Lake uh, Testament, um, part one, uh, is uh, part... Of, it, goes to, uh, relies on uh, the um, Hebrew Old Testament, if I'm correct. And that, does the Bible play in, in this whole trilogy that you're planning, does it play a role? Um, wow, that's another complicated uh, question. Uh, of course the answer is yes, and of course, the answer is no. I mean, yes, the story, my story of Jack and Eve rather than Adam and Eve, is obviously based on the Genesis story of 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 Adam and Eve. Uh, but. Uh, Uh, in, I have the sense that 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 was based on something else, you know. And at least in my understanding of the tradition of... I, I'm Jewish, uh, uh, and there is a tradition in of... It's called the Midrash, where, where one is almost obligated to continue to make up stories or to retell stories in one's own way. Uh, so, uh, yes, it is based on this, but that is based on something else. So we're all in in the wake of something else, and I consider myself to be in the wake of something else. Yes, I do. In the motion picture, you, um, you selected specific performers, and I believe you also play a role in the... Um, in the woodcut movie? Yes. Yeah, I did. I play Nobo Daddy in the woodcut movie, or that's my voice. Nobo Daddy is essentially the God figure that phrase is based on our friend William Blake's work. He called the God of the Hebrew Testament Nobo Daddy. Uh, I'm not a scholar of that in any way, so don't ask me scholarly questions about William Blake, please. But I adore William Blake. I don't feel like I understand. I understand it when I'm reading it, but when I close the book, it evaporates. But when I'm reading his words and looking at his pictures... I still feel somehow blessed, you know, and and uh, within a world that that lends understanding to 
this place, you know. Okay. So you have this, you've, the book of only Enoch is the second part of a trilogy. And what role does the book play in the second movie that's still in process of conception? There is a book that didn't make it into the canon of the Hebrew Testament or the Old Testament called the Book of Enoch. Uh, There are three versions of it. One is Ethiopian, one is from the Caucasus, I think, and one is, I can't remember, the other third one. But uh, uh, they were contemporary to, to to, to, to the books that were written that did make it into the canon of the what we call the Bible, and uh, this one didn't make it in. And uh, uh, I, you know, being a guy from Kentucky, not a scholar, I think I know why, you know, in my way, because it it describes heaven, and it is not at all what it's come to be advertised to be, you know. (laughs) It's full of, Things with a thousand eyes and fiery wings, and it's it's totally terrifying. And uh, it's essentially about a man who was able to go to heaven and write about it and live to tell the tale. He came back, you know, a human being. Mm-hmm. Well, what a good setup that is, you know. So, so I've I've just uh, set that in Kentucky and reimagined that one. So, uh, but that is not the story of the second movie. That is, that is the portfolio that is hanging in your museum. Uh, I, I, that that is that story. But but the relationship of that portfolio of prints is not the same relationship as the portfolio of woodcuts that went to make up the woodcut movie. Uh, in that case, I was physically using those woodcuts to construct the movie. Mm-hmm. In this case, the book of Only Enoch, my book, purports to be... Well, see, here we go again. Uh, <laughs> it purports to be uh, a book that showed up in a trunk, uh, a, a lost manuscript uh, that showed up from Cuba. Don't ask me why. That, that, that'll, that'll take another hour. But uh, uh, that, that, that in Kentucky. Uh, and in the movie that, that is, will take another three or four years, that shows up as a book in the movie, literally shows up as a book in the, uh, in the narrative of the second movie. Uh, and there are reasons for that. Uh, but I hadn't worked them out yet. Well, now you have introduced um, uh, new characters in, yeah. in the Book of Only Enoch, and, but then also some characters carry over from the first part. Always in, I feel like, if uh, even almost any of those images, you could, you could find part of it that is from a former portfolio, like even the jack-in-the-box shows up in some of these, kind of peeking out from behind a tree or whatever, and uh, even way back in the mechanical opera, Limbus, the, the main 
girl character had a doll named Lucy. The doll Lucy shows up in a lot of these just as like uh, almost trash in the forest where so there, so all of these things seem to get want to get dragged along to to new work so old imagery does seem to to get uh, to, to to come along into the new work as almost a treatise in a way mm-hmm. and do you have new characters as well in the yeah yeah they're 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 only Enoch is new the the character of only Enoch and uh oh there's a whole there's a whole list of new characters there's Claire Cecilia Claire she's 3C for short and uh her father Wee and her big uh, her big sister uh Jane Wee and uh Mr. Porco and yeah, there's all kinds of people showing up. Yeah. Now, uh, we ha- including in the exhibition um, drawings, and how did these drawings are not preliminary drawings for the woodcuts? How are you using the drawings to as a way of relating to the final prints? Um, in g- generally, uh, I-, I think by drawing. So, so. The narrative is worked out just intuitively with drawing, not with writing. So, I essentially, I make drawings and then write about them. You know, uh, so that's the answer to that. I think, yeah. And um, one of the things that um, I found very interesting is, you know, you we have in the Not in New York show the circular nature of Enoch's dilemma, uh-huh. which is the large, largest hand-made piece of paper that yeah. I've seen. Cast and paper, yeah. Cast paper. How does that relate to the Book of Only Enoch's story? Uh, you, could, you, uh, you could see similar imagery uh, in that. The cast pieces, uh, which again, uh, Krista Gregory helped me with. She's here. Uh, uh, they will show up in the movie usually as uh, uh, s- s- scene to, to, to delineate scenes, so so that the camera would be moving over these uh, ca- these pe- these pieces of paper that are have th- dimension to them uh, to set up Act One in the title and so forth, uh, and uh, and some of the imagery was worked out. That way too. Uh, there, there's a. I think in the border of your piece, there are rats running around the border yes. of that. And uh, I was working on a scene today. There's a there's a rat in my movie, who is him and the rat and God are constantly arguing with each other. It's it's like, oh my God, again, you know. Uh, so. Uh, I like the rat. He's, there's a talking rat in my movie. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that explains everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, in the book of Only Enoch, you've taken a, a very interesting approach to the execution of the prince. Uh, how did you decide you use a copper plate and you lose a, a woodblock? Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess, how did you decide to combine the two processes? 
and um, how do you do the text on the copper plate, and, and in what sequence do they get done? Um, it, it all has to do with narrative and storytelling, to go back to your original question. I've always thought of, in drawing and music, I've always thought of writing as drawing, basically. I mean, that's, the, that's what we're doing. We're drawing. Uh, and that we have lent meaning to, to those forms, those letters, is of interest to me. Uh, so I don't particularly separate the text from the imagery. So I, I try to think of them all as the same same thing, but but uh, so to arrive at some kind of way to do that that seemed to go together, uh, I had to rely on the knowledge of, of people I was working with, Mark Patsfall, uh, Emily Seitz, who is here, who was the uh, assistant printer on... Maybe on we the, could take a, a second and, and you could introduce... Of course, I, I can't see out there, so I know they're there. Everybody yeah. stand. Emily, and, Emily Seitz and Mark Patsfall, please stand up. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> yeah. those two. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so I think I drove them both crazy for two or three years. And, uh, uh, and, does, huh? does the printing process, which is in reversal, because you have to... you. The text, you actually executed the text on the plate, but you had to do it all backwards. That is a curious thing. I, I've, I've never, uh, yeah, well, obviously you have to write it backwards because you print it that way and then take it off and it's, then it's forwards, yeah. Does that bother you or when you compose the, the blocks? Do you think and, and think about what it's going to look like when it's printed? Or For whatever think? reason, I've always been able to write backwards as quickly as I can write forwards. It, you know, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. I don't know why. Uh, and so when do you... you what, how is the second part of the trilogy going to be different? What can we look forward to? Well, the process of movie making is quite different. Uh, it'll look different than the woodcut movie, and it's more of a spoken movie than a sung movie, though there will be some singing in it. But uh, so the pro this process involves physical space. I'm in the process of building. I guess you would say they're miniature. They're they're not that little. Like like a city and 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 some landscape and some objects and so forth and uh, uh, and then those will be combined with drawing. Uh, it's it's a pretty complicated process. Yeah. And you said that it's going to be more dimensional. Do I remember correctly? Yes. Uh, the of course. Physical space is obviously three-dimensional, you know, but but when it's on a screen, you know, I mean, people say, oh, that looks so three-dimensional. Well, a screen, a movie screen is as flat as you can get, you know, but it's it's an illusion. It's an optical illusion of, of three-dimension. But yes, I am shooting objects, and it's a little hard to explain briefly, but but... I think most people know what blue screen technique is, where you're shooting something and then you're taking out areas of it 
that are blue, uh, you can get rid of that and put other things in there. Uh, and But I'm also inserting drawn imagery. Uh, so, so say if I build a street, a city street, and I film that, uh, there are techniques in which I can do what's called camera mapping. And, and, and uh, I mean, I hadn't done it yet because I don't have this enough enough imagery yet, but I'll be able to make people walk down that street. Drawn figures walk down a physical street. Uh, and I think I'll be able to make it look as though they belong there. So, you know, check back with me another three, four, five years. I'll let you know. Okay, well, yeah. that sounds like <clears throat> a good idea. Okay. I will look forward to it. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to let everybody know uh, that there is a catalog from the University of Richmond Museum, which will be available in our shop um, come Saturday. And I think we'd like to take some questions from the audience for Jay. You don't have to, you know. <laughs> I just, so are you self-taught, basically? Um. Well, I did, you know, uh, I went to art school, but I left there because I didn't think it was doing me any good. And I would get into trouble, terrible trouble, with teachers that for some reason seem all to have been from Yale and places like that. And they would yell at me and say nasty things like, did you chew that out with your teeth or something like that? And I would say, who the f*** are you? I don't even like your work, you know? (laughs) So uh, so I left, you know, and, and, and found a way to do things that I thought they looked right better, better that I would decide how they looked, you know. But did you consult or seek advice from people About who what? were doing woodcuts and no. casting paper? and no. No. <laughs> okay. I did, like when, when uh, well, Chris can tell you, when we were casting that paper, uh, she called up, what's that company in Indiana that... that Twin Rocker. Huh? Twin Rocker. Is it Twin Rocker? Yes. Where are you, Krista? Krista had to go. Krista had to go. Okay. It's Twin Rocker. She said, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we, we're, we're, casting, we're doing a relief paper pulp cast that's about five feet by five feet. And Krista told me that they just broke into gales of laughter on the phone and said, that's not possible. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so, but, but I've, I've been blessed by, by people like Krista and Mark and... M and, and Michelle Red Elk, and we figure out a way to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it had to be a certain uh, lens of, of paper pulp and so forth that, that would hold together over that part area. And uh, it, it, you, you can do most anything, you know, it just takes some time to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. A question in the back Why are you still in Cincinnati? Or are you in Cincinnati? Oh, yeah, I am. Uh, well, uh, I raised... I, when Carl Solway had a show, I kind of followed that work here. I, I was maybe two and a half hours down the road in Kentucky. Uh, 
and uh, and had two children here and and raised them here and and it was that was that worked out and uh, and then I found that uh, it's a town of some interest to me. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, this was considered alien Yankee territory, you know, like the first outpost of the heathen north. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, it's kind of right, you know, but but uh, but there there's there's a uh, some lovely talented people here and. I would sometimes sit with my friends in New York who were paying thousands of dollars for a broom closet, you know, and and they were saying, how much do you pay for your studio? And it was like $300, you know. As if There's all of this kind of industrial space that is available. And, uh, uh, and, and then I did teach for a year or two at the Art Academy and met, met a wonderful group of people who are still my best friends. Uh, and many of them here tonight, uh, Tim McMichael and Michelle, and I could go on. But, but uh, and they would sometimes, we would sometimes work together on projects. And uh, there's a, there's a, and, and then I would start to meet people in the musical community. I think Tatiana Berman is here tonight and, and like a, just a beautiful Russian violinist. And uh, Paul Patterson in the symphony, and uh, he would he would help me on scores, and uh, it's possible here that sort of thing, you know. Um, so I'm still here. Yeah. Quick question: I actually wanted to inquire a little bit more about um, your musical practice and its relationship to your visual art. Um, and specifically, I was curious what instruments you play and if which instruments you compose with and if that instrumentation has changed between the operas and the movies uh, and how each of those different instruments and the songwriting process and how that all kind of plays together. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, uh, I... Guitar is my my main instrument. I can play other things, but I I don't have other things, you know. So uh, I I generally work on a guitar, uh, and I mean I still play. I do concerts, not here, you know. But but uh, uh, I do play in I play in Russia for some reason. They like me there. I don't know why, you know. But uh, in England and so forth. But but uh, mostly guitar. And then for the scores, I had to figure out how to write, how to, there was some like a string quartet type things. And Paul Patterson, who some of you all may know, beautiful, I think he plays viola in the symphony, but, but he can play anything that's got strings on it and you play with a bow. Uh, we would, uh, I would, could hear in my head how, how to write uh, an accompaniment like that and and he would help me write it down, and then he would procure players from the symphony. I called him my string pimp, and uh, <laughs> and he 
and, and we would record, and, and uh, they had no idea that I had no idea how to read music. Uh, but, but it was all, Paul knew that, but he didn't want to tell the players that because he, for some reason he didn't think that would go very well. And, uh, and so he made, we would make up this whole uh, sort of scenario where, you know, they weren't supposed to talk to me, you know, and uh, they would talk to Paul and then he would talk to me. And uh, so they would say things like, do you want this played legato, like where, where the notes stretched out? And, and, and I, but I didn't know what legato meant, so Paul... Paul would lean over and whisper in my ear, and he would say, do you want them to stretch the notes out? And I'd say, yeah. And, uh, and then he'd lean up, and he'd sit back up and say, Mr. Bolleton, yes, he, he wishes for you to play legato on this section. <laughs> and uh, worked out, you know? Yeah, I was just was wondering, uh, the look of Enoch, his face, the features, I mean, the big eyes and so on, the locks, the curl hair, did it, was it something which came to you and you were happy and you did it the first time? Or was it a character you had to work on it to get the image you were happy with? I mean, did it come spontaneously or was it a work of time to get to where you were happy? The, the, the character of yeah. only Enoch? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... A lot of that was worked out in drawing, you know. So you'll see that character in the drawings that are on the, the panel, wall panel, when you walk in that room where the Book of Only Enoch is. Uh, there was a kind of look to, to the hair. And, and then as you go along, the inclination is to, uh, to do a kind of shorthand, like a sort of spiral for a curl, and then, well, that spiral seemed to want to show up in trees and in landscape. And, in, or, and, and so I think in this sense that there is time, that over time, those, just say that, the spiral of the hair started to show up in other places and became a kind of graphic theme that seemed to want to tie things together. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that all? No, I have one question back here. Okay. Um, my question is, creativity of itself can be an end. But eventually, if you're going to pay your bills, one has to make a living. Mm -hmm. So where are these movies shown? Where is what? Where are the movies shown so the public can see it? Uh... I have chosen to, uh, well, the, 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 the Woodcut movie's been in many museums, and both in the United States and in Russia and in Chile and in England, and, and I'm paid. They pay me to do that. <laughs> and, uh, 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 but it, but I've, I've kind of made an end run around... I guess what you would call the movie business, if, if, if that's the question. I don't, I had one run in with uh, that whole process of film festivals and all of that. I didn't like it. I didn't even apply. Some Russian people applied for me. 
for one festival in Santa Fe, the Santa Fe Film Festival. But you won an award there. It did win. (laughs) 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 Which was a total, I mean, I didn't even know. Let's finish with that story because it's pretty funny. So, so, uh, I had been playing in Russia and they played the Woodcut movie in Russia and I had been back a few weeks and I got a call from Los Angeles from a woman who I ended up calling the bunny lady because she would tell me that, oh, she would excuse herself and, and then the phone would go silent and then she'd come back and she said, oh, there were bunnies hopping over my feet. And I'd say, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, she was on the board of the Santa Fe Film Festival, and she said, your friend, uh, and it was a Russian name, and I had no idea who she was talking about, said that I should see this movie, you know, made out of woodcuts. And I said, okay, you know. So I sent her some, and then it got, it was accepted in the festival. I didn't apply for it, uh, And she said, well, can you come to the festival? And I said, well, I was going to drive to California around then. And I said, sure, I'll I'll, I'll come. And uh, she said to come by. I didn't know that the festival that year had a kind of Russian theme to it. Uh, This is a lovely documentary filmmaker who became a friend named... Uh, her last name is Goldevskaya. She was an assistant to uh, Tarkovsky. It's astounding people. But, but uh, she said, well, when you get to Santa Fe, come to the screening of, the, of this documentary. You know, and I went to the screen, and she said, I'll be there and just introduce yourself. And so I did, and uh, she said, oh. And she told me when my movie would be screening. And, uh, and then she interrupted the conversation and said, you speak English so well. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, thank you. <laughs> I thought she meant like for a guy from Kentucky. You do all that, you know? And uh, so then they screened it and it was, it was like the first screening was in a community college place with a guy that looked like Java the Hutt in the, you know, and it was awful. There were three people, fall, you know, sort of falling asleep, and I said, well, this isn't much fun, you know. And then, but I was obligated to stay another couple of days, and I was walking around in downtown Santa Fe, never been there before, was trying to find a coat to buy for my daughter. And I got a call on my cell phone, and it was the festival, and say, are you coming to the, to the award ceremony? And I said, No. And uh, and they said, well, we would like you to. And and I said, well, where is it? And they, and they said, well, it's downtown. And I was downtown, and it was going to be in a couple of hours. So I I said, okay. And they said, well, sit in section so so forth and so on. And I thought, you know, okay, they just want to get rid of me, so I'm not in the way of anybody, you know. And uh, so I went and sat in e whatever section and. Uh, and it was amusing. There was uh, people that you would have seen in the movies, like I think Raul Trajillo. He plays like evil Indians, you know. And uh, and uh, 
Shirley MacLaine was there. And it was, I said, wow, look at that, you know? And, uh, and then they, they had the, the, it was just like TV. I'd never been. And uh, they play clips of what's going to win something. And, and, oh, a guy sat next to me from the, he, he introduced him. He sat down and he said, I'm the reporter from the local paper. And I said, oh, the arts reporter? And he said, no, I'm the reporter, you know. And, uh, and he was nice. And uh, he said, Did you, do you have a film in the festival? And I said, well, yeah, I wouldn't call it a film. It's made out of woodcuts. There's no film involved, you know. And he said, oh, I heard about that. And so anyway, we, we got, they, they were playing clips of what was going to win, and then they say, this one, you know, and it was a big... And, and they played a clip of my movie, and I thought, oh, my God, they put the wrong thing in. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then it was like everybody started to clap, and, and I said, <laughs> and the guy sitting next to me, and it was the first award, because I didn't know what to do. And the guy sitting next to me, he said, he went like this, you know. And uh, I said, am I supposed to go up there? And he said, yeah. Uh, so they gave me an award. I, I, was, I got a nice little thing from Miss Navajo of 2007. She was nice, you know. And uh, Shirley McLean congratulated me. And so you're standing there and people are waiting for you to say something. And so I... I said, thank you. <laughs> and that's, that's it. Yeah. Okay, let's go drink. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and now we are also excited to offer free parking. In addition to Jay's exhibit, we currently have on view Van Gogh, Into the Undergrowth, Kentucky Renaissance, the Lexington Camera Club and its community, 1954 through 1974. And for only a few more days, Not in New York, Carl Solway and Cincinnati. A program you might want to check out is Gallery Games, Murder in the Museum on November 17th from 5.30 to 7.30. Join us for a murder mystery happy hour where the first team to solve the crime wins a prize. Gallery Games is a collaboration with 21C Museum Hotel, and it's free. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even Snapchat. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalan. That's cod in Spanish. And hey, if you like our show, why not rate and review us in iTunes? I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. Music